Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. The 2015 LitFest Author Reading Series features some of the amazing authors of the week-long juried intensives. The second reading in the author series took place inside the LitFest tent under a sky full of lightning. Illuminating the audience's minds were authors Emily Rapp, Kim Adonisio, Matt Johnson, Megan Dom, and Pamela Ribbon. Welcome. My name is Mike Henry. I'm the executive director here at Lighthouse Writers Workshop. Thank you so much for coming to the... Thank you. Thank you. To the Thursday night super awesome, fantastic reading. Um, uh, we originally had four readers scheduled, um, but we, by popular demand, we added a fifth. I'm pretty excited about this. Yes. Um, I'm not going to tell you who it is. I'll tell you in a few minutes. Um, Okay, so the lineup for tonight, um, fantastic lineup. I'm going to read their bios um, in alphabetic order, and then I'm going to tell you what the order is uh, that they're reading in. I have it written down. So I think, I, think I, I put numbers next to their names. Um, and then I'm, I'm going to go and drink beer, so you won't see me again, which is it's a good, it's good, it's a good thing. So um, Kim Adonisio is the author of several books of poetry. Her new collection, My Black Angel, Blues Poems and Portraits with Woodcuts by Dar- Charles D. Jones. Her latest book of prose is a collection of stories, The Palace of Illusions. Adonisio has two books on writing, Ordinary Genius, A Guide for the Poet Within, which I highly recommend. I use it often in my classes. Um, and The Poet's Companion, A Guide to the Pleasures of Writing Poetry. A memoir called, this, this is a great title, you can take it so many different ways, Bukowski in a Sundress is forthcoming. Adonizio has been awarded a Guggenheim, two NEA fellowships, two Pushcart Prizes, and other honors. She'll be reading fourth. fourth. My favorite number, so, yeah. Megan Dom's latest book is The Unspeakable and Other Subjects of Discussion, a collection of original essays. She is also the author of three other books, as well as the editor of Selfish, Shallow, and Self-Absorbed, 16 Writers on the Decision Not to Have Kids, recently out from Picador. Megan has been an opinion columnist for the Los Angeles Times for nearly a decade and has written for numerous magazines, including The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine, Harper's, and Vogue. She has taught in the graduate writing program at Columbia University School of the Arts, as well as the Aspen Writers Foundation, the Nebraska Summers Writers Conference, and Cal Arts, and Lighthouse Writers Lit Fest, of course. She's going first. She's number one. Right? Okay, yeah. Matt Johnson was born and raised in Philadelphia. He is the author of the novels Pym, Drop, and Hunting in Harlem, the nonfiction novella The Great Negro Plot, and the comic books, oh boy, Incognigro, incon, in, how, how do you, yeah, how's that? How does he say it? What? Incognigro. Okay, good. <laughs> They're like, what did he say? And Dark Rain. He is a recipient of a James Baldwin Fellowship, the Hurston Wright Legacy Award, and a Barnes and Noble Discovery Great Writer Selection, and the Thomas J. Watson Fellowship. He is a faculty member at the University of Houston's Creative Writing Program. He's going to be reading second, number two. Got it? No, come on, don't. Did two just left? Anyway, so yeah, he's. He's batting second. Emily Rapp is the author of Poster Child, a memoir, and the still point of The Turning World, which was a New York Times bestseller, an editor's choice, and a finalist for the Penn Center Literary Award in Nonfiction. She lives in Palm Springs, California, with her husband, writer and editor Kent Black, and their daughter. Let's give it up for all of our five readers. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
Let's give it up for four readers. Yeah. Um, this is an encore presentation. Pamela's going to read an essay from this book called um, "Notes to Boys," which um, had us. We were, we were uh, people were people were injured. They were laughing so hard. So um, she's going to go last, just because I think after that you'll, you'll be so exhausted you won't. It'll be tough to pay attention. So. Um, Pamela Ribbon is a best-selling author, television writer, and screenwriter, retired derby girl, and wonder killer. That's capitalized, wonder and K, that's capitalized. I'm not sure what that means, but that sounds good. Um, In addition to her novels, one of which landed her a spot in the Oxford English Dictionary under Muffin Top. (laughs) Look it up. Pamela continues to work in television, notably having written for the Emmy Award-winning show Samantha Who? Her stage productions have become international cult sensations, Call Us Crazy, the Anne Heche monologues. She's been a featured performer on HBO's U.S. Comedy Arts Festival. On the internet, she's known as Pammy, where she's been running her wildly successful website, Pammy.com, for a long time, long enough to have been nominated for a lifetime achievement, Bloggy. Bloggy? There's an award called Bloggy. Awesome. She lives in Los Angeles, where she writes and writes and writes. Uh, let's give it up for Megan Dom. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, well, this is great. I just want to, uh, first of all, thank Lighthouse for having me here. This has been a spectacular week, so you guys are great. Um, Kate, you are amazing. I didn't realize you were leaving, but I had commented internally to myself many times that, that you were obviously ahead of the rest of us utterly um so uh anyway i want to thank andrea and mike and everyone else and um my class i have a the most fantastic class that i've had in a, the best class i've had in a really 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 long time so you guys are great you're all over thank you um so um i'm not going to read for very long because there are five of us but uh, i'm going to read a little bit um from an essay from the unspeakable and i will just start by saying that the the essays in this book um you know they're they're similar and that i wrote all of them and they are in this book but they're also different so if you don't like this you should still buy it because there's other there's other essays, and then, but then if you do, you should also buy it because they're kind of also similar. So it's just a no, it's a no lose. It's a, it's a no, it's a no lose. Um, so I'm gonna read. Uh, I'm gonna read from an essay called "Not What It Used to Be," which is sort of about nostalgia, among other things. My husband has been known to reminisce about his college years, often saying that the friendships he had then were deeper than any sense, that his highs were higher, his disappointments more shattering, his convictions more deeply felt. Last year, I finally made good on my promise, possibly it was a threat, to have us sit down and watch The Big Chill the iconic 1983 movie about a group of old college friends grappling with the fact that they are no longer impassioned students, but adult participants in late 20th century capitalism. I expected it to be painfully dated, but found it to have held up far better than I'd imagined. The Big Chill, of course, is the godmother of 30-something. The television series, only a few people laugh at that because that's really old. The the television series, okay, good, about the exact same types of people worrying about the exact same things. Together, they more or less defined the image of the yuppie, a label that now feels musty and lazy, but remains a template for the concept of socioeconomic upward mobility as an active, conscious gesture. 
though I was only 13 when The Big Chill was released, and therefore mainly interested in the soundtrack, which featured Three Dog Nights' Joy to the World, known to me and my peers as Jeremiah Was a Bullfrog. (laughs) 30-something premiered on network television the fall of my senior year in high school, a time when my primary interest was sloughing off the residue of youth and becoming a grown-up as quickly as possible. 30-something, true to its title, was about adults. It was about two married couples, Hope and Michael, and Nancy and Elliot, and also about a handful of single people who were portrayed as some combination of earnest and quirky, but were usually looked down upon as immature and neurotic. The married adults on the show were engaged in the juggling act, a national pastime in the 80s, of raising young children and advancing their careers, and in one case, restoring their charming craftsman house. The single people were interested and impassioned, but also possessed of some flaw, workaholism, insecurity, authority issues, that made them their own worst enemies. Many frequently wore sweatshirts bearing the names of their colleges. And, like the Big Chill characters often wondered aloud what had happened to their younger, more hopeful selves. Because it was a television show, they were all really great-looking and dressed really well, though because it was the late 1980s, many of the sweaters had ugly geometric patterns, and the women's suits had huge shoulder pads. Many of us have unconscious disbeliefs about our lives, facts that we accept at face value, but that still cause us to gasp just a little when they pass through our minds at certain angles. Mine are these, that my mother is dead, that the Vatican actually had it in itself to select a pope like Pope Francis, and that I am now older than the characters on 30-something. That last one is especially upending. How is it that the people who were, for me, the very embodiment of adulthood, the people who, with their dinner parties and marital spats and career angst, represented the place in life I would love to get to but surely never will, are now, on average, six to eight years my junior? How did I get to be middle-aged without actually growing up? Luckily, even some of the most confounding questions have soothingly prosaic answers. On the subject of growing up or feeling that you have succeeded in doing so, I'm pretty sure the consensus is that it's an illusion. Probably no one ever really feels grown up, except for certain high school math teachers or members of Congress. I suspect that most members of the AARP go around feeling in many ways just as confused and fraudulent as most middle school students. You might even be able to make a case that not feeling grown up is a sign that you actually are. Much as worrying that you're crazy supposedly means that you're not. My husband gave the big chill a B minus. He said he would have given it a C minus if not for Meg Tilly, who spent most of the movie in a leotard and tights, contorting her exceptionally lithe body into positions not possible for most human anatomies. He said the film struck him as a bunch of old people complaining. The characters are younger than we are, I said. No, they're not, my husband said. Yes, they are, I said. They're supposed to have graduated from the University of Michigan 15 years earlier. So, he said, we graduated 21 years ago. My husband is nostalgic for his college days. I, on the other hand, spent most of college waiting for it to be over so I could move to the city and work at an entry-level office job. 
Believe me, I know how lame that sounds. Among my greatest sources of shame and regret is that I managed to have such a mediocre time at a place that is pretty much custom-designed to delivering the best years of your life. I'd like to say I wasn't the same person back then that I later became and now am, but the truth is that I was the exact same person. I was more myself then than at any other time in my life. I was an extreme version of myself. Everything I've always felt, I felt more intensely. Everything I've always wanted, I wanted more. Everything I currently dislike, I downright hated back then. People who think I'm judgmental, impatient, and obsessed with real estate now should have seen me in college. (laughs) I was bored by many of my classmates and irked by the contrived mischief and floundering sexual intrigues of dormitory life. I couldn't wait to get out and rent my own apartment, preferably one in a grand Edwardian building on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. In that sense, I guess my experience in college was just as intense as my husband's. I just view that intensity, that intensity negatively rather than nostalgically, which perhaps is its own form of nostalgia. A little game I like to play is to look back on various critical junctures in my life and imagine what advice my older self might dispense to my younger self. The way I picture it, my younger self will be going about her business, and my older self will suddenly appear out of nowhere, like a goon sent in to settle a debt. (laughs) I always imagine my older self grabbing my younger self by the collar, or even shoving her in some manner. At first, younger self is frightened and irritated. Older self speaks harshly to her. But soon, a feeling of calm quickly sets in over the encounter. Younger self sits there wrapped, as though receiving the wisdom of Yoda or of some musician she idolizes, such as Joni Mitchell. But older self is no Yoda. Older self is stern and sharp. Older self has adopted the emphatic, no-nonsense speaking style of formidable women with whom she worked in countless New York City offices before deciding she never again wanted to work anywhere but her own home, a place where, over the years, she has lost a certain amount of people skills and has been known to begin conversations as though slamming a cleaver into a side of raw beef. (laughs) Older self begins her sentences with, listen, and look. She says, listen, what you're into right now isn't working for you. She says, look, do yourself a favor and get out of this situation right now. All of it. The whole situation. Leave this college. Forget about this boy you're sleeping with but not actually dating. Stop pretending you did the reading for your Chaucer seminar when you didn't and never will. (laughs) To which younger self will ask, okay, then what should I do? And of course, older self has no answer, because older self did not leave the college, did not drop the boy, did not stop pretending to have read Chaucer. And the cumulative effect of all those failures, or missed opportunities, blown chances, fuck-ups, whatever, is sitting right here, administering a tongue-lashing to her younger self, which is to say, herself, about actions or inactions that were never going to be anything other than what they were. And at that point, the younger and older selves merge into some kind of floating blob of unfortunate yet inevitable life choices. (laughs) At which time, I stop the little game. 
and nudge my mind back into real time and try to think about other things, such as what I might have for dinner that night or what might happen when I die. Such is the pendulum of my post-40 thoughts. Okay, thank you. Who is next? Matt? Matt Johnson is next. All right. Um, thank you. Uh, thank you to Mike and Andrea for having me out again. I came last year just kind of last minute and loved it and uh, really dug the community and saw something here I don't see anywhere else. So I was really excited to come back again. So thank you. And thank you, Kate. Um, Kate had to email me about six or seven times over two months to respond to anything. <laughs> so I'm sorry. <laughs> and. Right. I was thinking when you were leaving, I was like, oh, fuck. Yeah, excuse me. Um, but uh, <laughs> she was great about it. Really, she was really great about it. Um, okay, so I'm going to pick up nine pages into the book. The book I'm reading from is Loving Day. It came out a couple weeks ago. And uh, all you need to know is um, this guy has returned from living in Wales where he was married to this woman named Becky, you know, nicknamed Bex. He comes back. His dad has died, and he's living um, in the big burnt out uh, mansion in the middle of the ghetto that his dad left him. And he, by trade, he's a comic book artist. And, um, and when he comes to the house, he can't figure out why his dad was sleeping in this burnout room on the top f- floor. And he instead sleeps downstairs in the living room uh, in a tent. And this is his first night there um, in the house where his father died of pneumonia. I hear a sound and I'm awake and it happens so fast that I don't know if I dreamt it. I'm not married anymore. There's no Bex in the bed next to me to ask if she heard something too. No Becky who knows what to do because she's so much smarter than me that I can resent that truth and still depend on it at the same time. No Bex because I never grew up or wanted what grown folks want or know that that's my fault and I can accept that no Becky with her sallow Welsh flesh glowing in the moonlight an image I love because its contrast made my own pale flesh seem sable in comparison I sink into despair at that at the reminder of my failure to meet the needs of the one person I was legally sworn to love and even though it's been almost 13 months now and I feel it how alone I am Then I hear the sound again, and suddenly all I feel is fear once more. It could be the settling of the house, the symphony of old wood doing its opening night performance. There are no sounds of cars outside to hide the acoustic. Another sound. I think, I don't know, so I stopped breathing. When I was a kid, I would lie in bed at night, so my fear of an exploding bladder was greater than my fear of ghosts I was sure I would see on my way to the can. I remain still in my bed for a minute more before my fear congeals into self-consciousness. I am a grown man scared of the dark. I get up to take a piss. My feet are so loud on the creaking planks that it reminds me that real objects make real sounds, not negotiable ones. Around me there are shadows and there may even be ghosts too, but I'm old enough to refuse to see them. In the bathroom, my urine hits the water in the bowl, and I look out the window into the gray of the night, the mist hovering over the grass, and then I see him. 
He's sitting on the tall grass in the dark, all alone. His legs folded under him, just sitting there. My stream runs its course, but I still stand there. I can't move. I look at him, bald, black, ageless clothes without distinction in the gloom in the middle of the massive lawn between the mansion and the street and I become as frozen as he is I don't move because I'm too scared to even though I don't know why even though he's not moving he doesn't seem to be looking at me or at least his head isn't facing my exact direction it's facing the front door I think he's a ghost. I know he's a ghost. He stays there. A minute passes and he stays there. Maybe not a ghost. Ghosts come in and out, dissipate, are insubstantial by nature. So it's a man. And when I move to pull away from the window, his head snaps up and he stares at me. Shooting down to a squat, I stay low till my legs begin to hurt. There's no phone. I have no phone in this country, not in this house. I cannot call anyone even if I wanted to. No becks. My father is dead. I am alone. My breath is so loud, and I try opening my mouth wider just to get the sound to stop taunting me. I am a big guy. Six foot four away, 245 naked, and I decide to act like I am a big man, and I shoot upright, head for the room my father's work materials in, go to grab the biggest thing I can find. This turns out to be a long wooden spear, an extension for a foam paint roller. I hold it with my two hands. I am an African warrior who looks like a Celtic one. <laughs> I grip it so hard in my hands that my hands become even more white, adrenaline having replaced my butt, and then I go to the window. I want him to see me. I want him to see my size, my determination, my intent, my lance. I look out the window, and he's gone. And for a second... I'm even more scared. I want to be relieved, but now I'm incapable of it. Rod in hand, I check the other windows. I see nothing. I go upstairs for a better view. No change. Germantown Avenue, past the fence, is without life. I stare out for minutes, then more. Occasionally, a car drives past along the chip cobblestones, but otherwise, it's empty. Too late to come home, too early to drive out, which puts it around 4 a.m. I stand there on the second floor in the burnt-out room of my father's. He chose it because it has the best view of the lawn, I realize. And when many minutes later, I grow more tired than scared, I head back downstairs to lie down. Tomorrow, which is today, I will go sit at a table in a large crowded room and smile at strangers, drawing pictures of their heads on muscle-bound bodies covered in leotards, and they will pay me in cash. It is so absurd. I laugh a little in my head, and I need that to get to my tent again, slide into my sleeping bag. Fear that, I remind myself. Fear social failure. You're better at it. I saw a crackhead in the night in Germantown. This hardly qualifies as a supernatural experience. I chuckle a bit and go to zip up my tent, and then I see a person standing by my door. She's a woman. 
She's not looking at me. She's looking up the stairs. My breath gets heavy again, but she keeps looking up there, not over at me. And she's a ghost, not the dead kind. She's clothed in a dirty gown, the lingerie of drug-addled seductress. She's a white woman, gaunt cheeks like bones around the dark hollows of her eye sockets. If she looks at me, I will pee myself. I will shit myself on this very floor and I will scream too. I don't care what she wants. I just don't want her to turn her head and look at me. She coughs. It keeps going. Phlegm rising from behind her toenails with each convulsion till it gets to the back of her throat and jumps into her hand. It echoes through the house. It is more here than I am. There's a splatter and then she's gone. When I hear the front door click behind her, I pull myself frantically from my bag and out my tent and grab my spear and head for her. I am rage. I am anger. I am also fear recycled, but I am also caution too. So when I reach the front door, I think there might be a back of them out in the porch. The monsters, the rags falling from their skin, prepared to ambush me. So I let go of the handle. I am back in Philly. Landing in an airport doesn't count. Sitting in a taxi can done anywhere. This feeling, this is Philly. They want something from me. They must or they wouldn't be here. Do they think I'm white? Out of my element? Vulnerable? They want something and I have nothing. I am a man who has nothing. All this time meandering through life, yet all I have is wounds. I have treasure. I have none. And I never want to know what they take from me instead. There is a tattered curtain over the entry's left window, and I pull it aside, and the glass revealed is hand-blown and old and distorted, and I see movement. I see them. I see the figures, a man and a woman staring at the house, standing on the lawn, walking, walking backwards, staring at the house, walking backwards away from me until they reach the fence to the street and float up and over. I keep staring and waiting for more, but there's nothing there. I keep staring, though, until my breath calms down, but nothing happens out there. When I turn around, I look through the shadows at this home. I look at the buckling floors. I look at the cracks in all the walls, the evidence of a foundation crumbling beneath us. I smell the char of the fire, the sweet reek of mold, the insult of mouse urine. I see a million things that have to be fixed, restored, corrected, each one impossible, and each task mandatory for me to escape again. I see Sisyphus's boulder just with doors and beams. I can't take it, so I look out the window once more where nothing is coming to get me. Because the neighborhood doesn't need to. Because it knows I'm trapped. And it has all the time in the world. And I look back into the house. And that's when I decide I'm going to burn the fucker down. Thank you. I'm I'm sorry. I don't know who's next. Emily Rapp? Emily Rapp's next. Thank you. God, we clearly can't take directions. We're like, what number are we? Thank you, Lighthouse. I had a great group for the second year in a row. You guys have been fantastic. Such a good workshop. Such good stories. 
So th- I'm going to read from an essay that um, originally was commissioned by a friend of mine who works for BuzzFeed, who told me that I could write like 1,200 words, and then I send him like 9,000. He's like, dude, no. <laughs> you can't follow directions. You suck. So I publish it elsewhere. Um, sorry, Isaac. Um, so it's called Casa Azul Cripple. And it's uh, a story that I wrote or an essay that I wrote while visiting Mexico City with my then fiancé. Um, and it's also a love letter to Rebecca Solnit's book, The Far Away Nearby, which is a book that I absolutely love and love her. And so it's a combination of um, analyzing that book while having a personal experience. So it takes place in Mexico City. It starts with an epigraph from Rebecca Solnit's The Far Away Nearby. Shock. Creation is always in the dark because you can only do the work of making by not quite knowing what you're doing, by walking into darkness, not staying in the light. Ideas emerge from edges and shadows to arrive in the light, and though that's where they may be seen by others, that's not where they're born. In Mexico, in a museum with a name I've forgotten, hangs Desnudo de Frida Kahlo by Diego Rivera. In this 1931 nude portrait, Frida still has both of her legs. As an amputee long interested in Frida's story, her art, her journals, her likeness printed on reusable shopping bags and colorful refrigerator magnets from Austin to San Miguel de Allende, her authentic genius, I know that the phrase limb loss is not the correct description for the story we share. Body parts are not dis- misplaced. People don't lose track of their thumbs and toes, their feet and their arms. Recovering from Limb Loss was the title of an article I read once at breakfast as a teenager. In a magazine, my prosthetist had recommended to me and to which I briefly and reluctantly subscribed. Interviews with new amputees and their doctors appeared alongside ads for various brand name artificial feet, showing amputees in motion, amputees mid-swing on the golf course, Amputee moms lifting bags of groceries from the backs of minivans while smiling, normal children looked on. Amputees mowing lawns, building decks, and fixing dinner. You can have a normal life, the article chirped, exclamation points included. Annoyed, I put the magazine aside, returning to my bowl of Cheerios, to the pages of 17, turning to the ads that spoke to me. Those of two-limbed girls in acid-washed, high-waisted guest jeans, off-the-shoulder esprit tops, oversized swatch watches, and wildly permed hair. The uniform of the teenage girl in 1988. Recovery, I thought then and believe now, is not an option, as it implies a return journey down a path that no longer exists, that has been leveled and burned. An unmarked state of being is impossible to remember once loss has been sustained. Survival, however, is a different story. It is the real stuff of true fairy tales lived and told in a different way. In many tales of transformation, the girl enters the forest, literally or metaphorically, and is changed. Perhaps she is saved by a man, by an animal, by her own sharp wits and clever mind. Perhaps she perishes among the dark trees and remains unsaved, serving as a cautionary tale for others who might be tempted to follow her rebellious example. When a girl like me, like Frida, loses a limb and gains an artificial one, she learns to appear and reappear on a daily basis. Leg on, leg off. This is a kind of art form to change so often, to hold the before and after together in one's mind as well as in one's body. In mine and Frida's story, in this reverse fairy tale, nobody overcomes anything. People who go through a crucible experience and shout from a mountaintop that the world is wonderful are liars. 
I've known this for as long as I've been making and holding memories. The more believable myth and the one more challenging to embody is to live on in the body you've been given. Frida did that with a powerful, complicated grace that has always intrigued and sometimes repelled me. In Mexico City, in the infamous Casa Azul that Frida shared with Diego Rivera, now a beautifully curated museum, I'm thinking of the word crippled and the way people use it, incorrectly denoting a state of being that implies stillness, stasis, and ruin. It was a crippling financial blow. I am crippled by anxiety. Deformity as disaster. On this, a warm afternoon in December, I'm sitting on a bench in Frida's carefully tended garden wearing jeans and sneakers. I'm weighted and tired. I have a sore near my crotch that is embarrassing and has been rubbed raw. Such inconveniences are an inevitable consequence of the uneven weight dis- distribution involved in a pregnancy lived on a prosthetic limb that extends, as I explain all the time, in elevators all the way up. Each step is painful. Is it crippling pain? I'm not sure. Can one be already crippled and then be somehow crippled again by a new pain, however localized and temporary? For days, I've been gritting my teeth while laboring down the streets of Mexico City, a crowded jungle of sensations that enervates and inspires. I don't want to complain because this funky patch of skin is embarrassing. That something so small could cause such pain shames me somehow and makes me mute. The baby feels like a stone about to drop between my legs. Sitting down provides the illusion of holding her in, keeping her safe. Green, delicately veined plants loom all around me in this well-tended garden itself like a tableau from a fairy tale. Bright flowers with names I'll never learn droop over stone facsimiles of temples. I'm thinking, given what we just learned about how Frida lost her leg and how it immobilized her and how Diego cheated on her afterward and how perhaps she never recovered from this blow about beauty and pain. Diego was a man, an artist, a famous artist... Frida was the pitied woman, the dynamo ruined by misfortune, the fallen body, the beautiful woman made unbeautiful, the cripple. I'm remembering now the breakout groups at the amputee support conventions I attended as a teenager, briefly. How another young female amputee and I would chastise the other older attendees who were openly ashamed of their bodies, saying, I am crippled, in loud voices, as a way of reclaiming the word. Thinking this made us strong, Thinking this made us bright, impervious stars of youthful potential. Thinking we could convince people that we were normal by calling proud attention to our difference. A strange and faulty strategy. And I'm remembering the men wearing khaki pants and polo shirts. There was an intentionally nondescript uniform, it seemed, who were later identified as amputee devotees. They hid in the plastic planters of the hotel lobby, leaping out when you walked by saying to your face, apropos of zero, unbelievable unbelievable things like, nobody will love you because of your leg, but that's what I love. The thing I want. Spoken together, the statements were terrifying, both contradictory and true. Devotees were, as I remember, middle-aged and especially fond of young girls, young pretty girls, which my friend and I, as we linked arms and hurried away, reminded one another that we were. We were pretty. We didn't need these men. It was the early 90s, and we were young feminists, empowered and independent. The devotees were wrong. But what spun through our minds all the time, every moment, without ever being spoken aloud, what if they're right? We were careful not to look at one another, afraid of the fear reflected back in the other's face, until long after we'd cleared the lobby, left behind the gauntlet of those grasping men, and returned to our teenage bubble of concerns. 
These devotees were devoted, they claimed, but to what? To whom? To loving the cast-offs and the untouchables, it seemed, and they wanted credit for that, appreciation from those of us who, according to their logic, were undesirable. They were big men, couldn't we see? I could not. I didn't want to exist on some outlying planet in the galaxy of Eros. I wanted no interest in conditional desire. Didn't want to dwell strange and terrible in some outer ring. I wanted to be in the center, the bullseye, of somebody's wanting, but not in a way that obliterated all of me for the sake of one aspect of my appearance and experience. Here at the Casa Azul, I'm six months pregnant with my daughter. My first child, my son Ronan, has been dead for almost a year. In the dark, they are both being reformed, wound around some mysterious core. The girl without conscious effort in the darkness of the womb, and the boy in my memory, in the land of the dead, which could be dark or light, here or there or nowhere, and takes a great cracking effort to imagine. Positive thoughts for the baby, I think, and close my eyes, inhale the scent of garden flowers, the sweet with the sour. The shadows of this liminal world, someone has disappeared, someone is emerging, and are edgy, the ideas it brings to me unwelcome. These are crippling thoughts, I think, and almost laugh out loud. We have just walked through the busy, tourist-crowded kitchen with its walls of heavy cooking pans, folk art, the long wooden dining table checkered by light from the long windows. We have gazed at the narrow bed where Frida lay when she was laid up, with its crisp linen bedding, the photograph of a dead child wearing a crown of roses hanging above the simple headboard, the bedroom of the invalid, the once vibrant woman made one-dimensional and immobile. Here in Frida's room, you are not allowed to sit on the bed. You cannot touch the sheets or the walls. You weave and float through these artifacts of her life, observing and imagining. I know Frida, I want to say to the people emerging from the house. I, I know her, and you do not. This is, of course, a lie. In Frida's paintings, a record of what came from her mind when her body was gone, there exists in her return gaze only what she allows. The rest is hidden, held back. When you are made differently, there is so much you don't show, so much of yourself that lies out of view, only to be revealed in a moment of trust. This is full exposure, much more interesting than a photograph of someone's naked body partially covered, retreating from the camera, the proportions of the shape expected, the face unseen. There's something sexy about a decision to put something necessary on, to take it off, but only for one set of eyes. Crippled and proud! My amputee friend and I would chirp to one another from our separate beds at the convention hotel we shared, and then we turned our backs to one another, retreating into our private and unspoken grief, made more miserable because we pretended it didn't exist. I want to stand up and say to these museum goers that they don't get to have it all, that you don't get to have a whole body and then pretend to know Frida's story or mine or Ronin's. I want to say to every devotee everywhere, none for you. I want to say that you don't get to claim that you're an artist if you have not suffered, although who am I to quantify or qualify, qualify such experience? In this garden, I long to say, you get nothing. But what do we learn in this museum that documents the reality of transient existence as all museums do with their artifacts of lost time? Have a look at the bed where Frida's body lay. Can you truly imagine another's dead child, missing foot, failed love affair, truncated life, busted pelvis, new beginning? In Jerusalem, after a long and sweaty wait, you can touch the stone where Jesus' body was supposedly washed after it was taken from the cross. People kiss the hot beige stone through hot tears, the size of a picnic table, rubbing it with their hands, a fantasy of intimacy, a delayed salvation. 
Devotees love because their desire is both hyper-focused and exclusionary, a fantasy of devotion, a conditional respect. In the glass room below the bedroom, have a look at the leg Frida wore on her person, with its fancy red boot, now disembodied and disconnected. Things that never lived don't die, Rebecca Solnit reminds me in her book. Corsets and legs and false feet are ex-votos that live on in the world without their owners. Months later, a pediatrician will ask me if my leg is something my daughter might inherit, the way my son inherited the genetic disease that killed him. Not unless she's buried with it, I say, and think of the bright pop of red in Frida's shoe, the ragged edges of her corsets like the palm trees that litter sidewalks after a rainstorm in L.A. This memory of color and texture is what keeps me from standing up and slapping him. The sorcery of grief and illness is powerful, an unstoppable tale at the end of which all people don't emerge, or else they stumble into a fierce light, wholly changed. I'm sitting in the garden, but in my mind, I'm in the glass gallery with the parts Frida left behind, the parts that didn't die with her, that the public will inherit, her legs, her her rings, her winged corsets, the ragged and miraculously preserved artifacts of her disappeared body. Is it her pain or her freedom from pain that we celebrate? How are we devoted to her and to one another? What does true devotion require? What mental and physical perversions are necessary for us to keep living on in this ruptured world? This line from Solnit, this question, sings in my head but has no answer. Who drinks your tears? Who has your wings? Who tells your story? Fairy tales, Solnit says, are about getting into and out of trouble. Our most important stories are about turbulence, out of one darkness and into one light. You enter a forest that forges you and eventually escape it to enter another. At this moment, I wish it could be otherwise. Thanks. Well, I feel like a broken record thanking Andrea and Mike and my group, and but it's all true, you know. I just, it's really great to be here. I'm really happy to, yeah. So, um, anyway, it's just kind of you guys are amazing. It's really, I'm just, I'm really happy to be here and, and say something to you tonight and to hear what other people are saying. So, I'm going to do some different, a few different things because, um, I have both a new book of stories and a new book of poems. So I thought, well, you know, I feel torn, like, about what to read. And because my craft lecture was on openings, I thought what I would do is sort of um, give you a little flyby on, like, a handful of the stories in this book and read you the openings of the stories and then, like, finish with a couple of poems. So these are all um, openings from some of the stories in the Palace of Illusions. Um, This is from, this is The Other Woman. It would end in disaster, everyone said, and everyone was right, but everyone was on the outside of the situation and therefore did not know everything. She was on the inside, living with a man and in love with another woman, Loving the man, but not being sure anymore she should live with him. Loving the extravagant Italian meals he cooked, and the way he stood frowning when he painted in the corner of their living room that served as his studio. Loving his longish black hair on the nape of his neck. But she also loved the longer black hair of the other woman, and how the other woman would kiss her and then pull back and look at her intently and then kiss her again, laughing. 
The other woman's mouth was softer than the mouth of the man she lived with, and she could not stop thinking about kissing her. And this is the opening of the title story, The Palace of Illusions. That summer, I was 21. I worked in a big tent with the words, The Palace of Illusions, in blue on a white banner stretched across the entrance, making doves vanish from cages, holding a big snake by the neck so it would coil around my chest, sawing my girlfriend, Alice, in half inside a box or cutting off her head. When she talked, a seemingly disembodied head on a platform across the room from the rest of her, girls would scream and sometimes faint in their boyfriend's arms. I liked to think it was my skills, not just the sultry weather and the beer everyone was guzzling from wide plastic cups. I was the illusionist. I made believers out of skeptics, convinced ordinary people of an extraordinary world that existed just on my stage. I was good, that's what I'm saying. I bet you were, the girl said. This is your studio? She was taking in my room the water-stained wallpaper with the roses on it, the frayed edge of the carpet, my hot plate on top of the waist-high refrigerator, Cans of spaghetti and soup neatly stacked next to the sink. For real, she said. This is um, the opening of Ever After. The loft where the dwarfs lived had a view of the city and hardwood floors and skylights, but it was overpriced and too small now that there were seven of them. And this is the opening of another breakup song. They broke up with Fuck You. They broke up with her standing in front of the door trying to block it to keep him from leaving. He was big, nearly twice her size, and repeatedly patting her head. <laughs> um, cancer poems. When Ruth walks into the community college classroom for the second meeting of Introduction to Poetry, she looks around and realizes that only the crazies are left. On the teacher's desk is a pile of drop slips from the normal people who had introduced themselves last week. Hi, I'm Cindy, and I'm applying to Mills College. My name is John. I wanted to, like, try to write some poems. I'm Wayne Dubikowski. He's awesome. Normal Berkeley kids with steel balls in their pierced tongues and thin silver rings sticking out of their eyebrows. But those students are gone, Ruth sees, as she takes a seat in the second-to-last row. They have better ways to spend a Thursday night. Concerts, movie and pizza dates, petting in their parents' base rooms, basements drunk on stolen liquor. They are young and healthy and optimistic. She would not be here if she were any of those things. The desk she eases into has a flip-up writing surface she has to struggle to lift from its collapsed position and screeks loudly as she wrestles with it. The other students look at her, but no one offers to help. And this is the opening of the last story called Ice. 
Last night I dreamed I killed my brother with an axe. I chopped off his right hand at the wrist, and he bled forever. Then I went home and forgot about him until my mother called to tell me he was gone. And this was the good brother. I don't know why I had to dream about killing him when it's the other one I wish were dead, 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 dead. So those are some openings of some of the stories in that book. And um, thanks. <laughs> Just to give you an idea of the territory, and if you were at my craft lecture the other day, maybe you can like judge those against what I said an opening should do and see if they actually fulfill it or not. So the other thing I want to read from is this book called My Black Angel, which is a um, a book of blues poems and portraits, which has these really amazing woodcuts from this artist. And uh, so he did these woodcuts of various artists, and I wrote the poems. And we sort of put, in, put them together, and we're actually working on a CD now that's almost finished that's eventually we're going to have available. So um, I'll just... Um, I'll read you like three or four of these. And I'm going to end with a little harmonica. So this one's called Cigar Box Banjo. And it's got, it mentions Blind Willie Johnson. I don't know if you can see this, but this is Blind Willie Johnson. Blind Willie Johnson could coax music from a single string. God plucked a rib and found a woman. Concert aria in the gypsy song, long groan of orgasm in the first kiss, plastic bag of heroin ripening in the poppy fields. Right now, in a deep pocket of a politician's brain, a bad idea is traveling along an axon to make sure the future resembles a cobra rather than an ocarina. Still, there's hope in every cartoon bib, above which a tiny, unfinished skull in its beneficence dispenses a drooling grin. The heart may be a trashy organ, but when it plucks its shiny banjo, I see blue wings in the rain. And um, this is called Creased Map of the Underworld. And that's got um, Billie Holiday to accompany it. Creased Map of the Underworld. And it actually, the first line is kind of a spin on a, on a Gerard Manley Hopkins line, which is nothing is so beautiful as spring. And it kind of took that the other direction. Nothing is so beautiful as death thinks death stilled lark on the lawn its twiggy legs drawn up squashed blossoms of skunks and opossums on the freeway dog that drags itself trembling down the front porch step and stops in a black gummed grimace before toppling into the poppies the ugly poppies in Afghanistan, they are again made beautiful by a mysterious blight. Ugly are the arriving American soldiers, newly shorn and checking their email. 
but beautiful when face up in the road, or their parts scattered like bullet or sprinkler spray or stellar remains. Lovely is the nearly expired star casting its mass into outer space. Lovelier the supernova tearing itself apart or collapsing like Lana Turner in Frank O'Hara's poem. Nothing is so beautiful as a poem except maybe a nightingale, thinks the poet writing about death, sinking leithwards. Lovely river in which the names are carefully entered. In this quadrant are the rivers of grief and fire, grid north, black azimuth. Down rivers of fuck yous and orchids steer lit hearts in little boats, gamely making their way, spinning and flaming, flaming and spiraling. Always down, down, the most beautiful of the directions. And, um, so, um, one thing is that, you know, I've been playing for harmonica for, I don't know, seriously for about 10, I've been playing it 10, 15 years, but studying it seriously for 7 to 10 of those. And, um, and, what I did when I started learning was that I would just, because I had poetry audiences who were sort of captive audiences, I'd just be like, I'm going to play harmonica now. And, you know, <laughs> subjected them to my early harmonica stylings. And then I got a little better, and I also realized, you know, like, I kept playing this train song, and I finally went, why don't I write a train song? So that there would actually be some, you know, slightly logical reason for playing a train song at a harmonica reading. So I did. So there is a train song in here. It's a longer one, so I'm not going to read the poem called Train Song. But there's another train song called Northeast Corridor Blues. Northeast Corridor is the Amtrak line, you know, that goes up and down the East Coast. So, And it's in the form of a blues. So I will read you that one and then close with, a, with my version of a train song. So this is Northeast Corridor Blues. Lost my ticket when I got on the train. Oh, and this is, I think this is Pearl Bailey here. So, and Charlie's work is amazing. He did actually a, um, he did a fine arts letterpress book uh, that's, you know, like $500. <laughs> then there's this book, which is quite a bit less. So I was really happy to have this book come out and actually be something people could buy and still have these beautiful images in it. So anyway, this is Northeast Corridor Blues. Lost my ticket when I got on the train. Conductor said, sorry, you got to pay again. If he was a rock, I'd be a speck of sand. Passing yards of junked cars, their hoods popped open. Water towers, trailer parks, local taverns, gone as soon as you look at them. Traveling down to D.C. to bury my mother. Put her ashes next to the bones of my father. Tell the priest he won't have to bother. Everyone's a stone, but I'm a speck of sand. No matter what I do, I've got to pay again. Lost my ticket when I got on the train. So let's end by getting on the train.
all aboard. Thank you, Lighthouse. Thank you for uh, having me. I'm honored to be among such amazing speakers and writers tonight. Holy cow. Uh, so this is notes to boys and other things I shouldn't share in public. You only need to know. It's a memoir about my awkward high school years in a small Texas town where I was the kind of girl who wanted to find someone to love me and have a relationship like on broadcast news. <laughs> But I wanted this boy to be my Holly Hunter. I was Albert Brooks. I knew that. Uh, Tuesday, when I read this, I had horrible altitude sickness, and I was near a 10-year-old girl, so already this is going better. (laughs) We'll see how it goes after that. The first time I ever really made out with a boy, like super made out, we were in a bed, and no parents were home. I was 15 and very nervous. He must have sensed that, because he got up to make me more comfortable. He put a record on his player. It was two live crews, me so horny. So I asked, do you have anything else? And he said, I do. It's something that reminds me of you. And then he played Richard Pryor's Live in Concert, which I now choose to take as a compliment. So we're making out, and then he'd start laughing, and I'd think it was because of me, but it was really because of something Richard Pryor just said about eating pussy, but I didn't hear it anyway, because I was too busy thinking really important thoughts in all caps, like, I am finally making out with a boy, and get ready, my entire life is about to change. My three-way with Richard Pryor was the first time 
I'd ever been all the way felt up. The first time I'd been dry humped, had a tongue jammed in my ear, or any of those things that you know will happen to you one day, but you don't imagine they'll all happen at once, right in a row, so fast and sticky and wet, and with so many people laughing in the background while... Richard Pryor's going on about how white women are polite during oral sex, and then suddenly this guy's pulling up my shirt, and I just knew this was all going too fast, and I kind of collapsed on his chest, shuddering and spasming with an asthma attack until I managed to gasp, I'm really terrified. (laughs) So the next day, that boy dry-humped and told most of the school, or at least the important people in it, and that included his, unbeknownst to me, girlfriend at the time. All I heard about it was that his retelling included the lines, no, I didn't fuck her. That girl was crying before I ever got her shirt off. That embarrassing moment forced me to make a very real change in my life, one that came with a very grown-up, adult, mature decision. I decided to lose my virginity. And thus began what I can only describe as my year of dicks. (laughs) So glad there's no 10-year-old this time. (laughs) Just so you know at the Q&A... She said, um, I have a lot of questions. (laughs) The first dick I ever saw in person, I'm almost positive there was something wrong with it. It it wasn't my first encounter with a penis. It was just the first one I saw in the daylight with my eyes. In real life, not on television or my dad stepping out of a shower. The first penis in the wild that happened to me, and you will understand why I'm insisting it happened to me in a second, was a little bit earlier when I went to see House Party 2. Uh, I call my friend at the time Kay just to protect her life. Kay was on again, off again with this guy who worked at the theater. After he let Kay and me into the movie for free, he pulled me aside to take me into another screening room that was showing the cook, the thief, his wife, and her lover. I guess he wanted me to watch Naked People. I I think it was a novelty at the time, a movie with an NC-17 rating playing right next to Ernest Goes to Jail. Honestly, I can't even pretend to understand what this guy's game was because I was so unaware of game at the time. Case in point, we're standing in the aisle watching movie sex when this guy starts putting his tongue in my ear. No warning, no lead up. My ear is suddenly wet with a near stranger's mouth. And this is really surprising when you're holding a tub of popcorn and wearing a giant white t-shirt that says world peace. (laughs) So I say something cool like, should we be standing here in the middle of all these people while you're doing that to me? He pulls me aside into a seat and the next thing I know, he's put my hand on... Okay, look, you guys, it's been many years since I was legally allowed to look at teenage dicks, and I'm not trying to. I'm okay with those years being in my past. I'm just saying that all I have in hindsight is hindsight and, and lingering trauma because this first one felt enormous and like it was entirely made of plastic. <laughs> so I pulled my hand away, positive he'd wrap my fingers around some kind of 20-ounce Diet Coke. <laughs> He's looking at me in the dark of the theater, and he says something romantic like, you wanted to see House Party 2 for free, didn't you? And I'm like, yeah, I guess, that's true. But the the truth is, I have no idea what to do with this thing he's put in my hand that does not feel like a human part, and I also don't understand why he's got me in this movie theater instead of Kay, so I just kind of sit there watching the movie, and he stands up and he goes, come on. Oh, good, I think he's walking me back to my kid and play movie. But instead, he pushes me into a supply closet, shuts the door, and kisses me while pushing me onto the floor in the dark, and he's trying to pull down my pants, and I realize it's going to happen right here. This is it, in the dark, near a mop, I think, uh, on some really cold cement, wearing my World Peace t-shirt. I'm going to make this important transition into womanhood with a guy who kind of looks like Kiefer Sutherland, but that's kind of all I know about him. This moment is very important. Everything will be different now. It's really too big of a moment to keep to myself. I should let this boy know that he's about to change everything for me. This is monumental. So I stop him as he's trying to unleash the Coke bottle, and I say, hey, I just want you to know this will be my first time. 
It was dark, so I couldn't see him. But I heard him sort of stop breathing for a second, I guess to figure out how best to respond to this wonderful, important, intimate thing we were about to share. And then he got up, and he walked out of the supply closet, and he never said another word to me again. <laughs> he did sit between Kay and me as we watched House Party 2, actually, as I watched House Party 2, because eventually he took Kay to the supply closet, where they were gone for quite some time. And I thought to myself, there's a lesson in here, but I'm definitely too stupid to know what it is yet. I'll see if I can work it out through a series of poems about a spurned lover. So back to this other penis, the first one I could see in the daylight. So I don't know. He was young, but not too young. He was my age, but younger than the Coke bottle dude and physically, physically smaller, like, a, like as a human, but also smaller in like what I was suddenly looking at and dealing with. <laughs> I've tried to Google what I could possibly have seen, but uh, Googling when is a dick not done yet, or... uh, (laughs) Penis development issues cocktail wiener. It's just not going to give you the search results you're looking for. Sorry. (laughs) Shit. So... So the dick. So it was like it was like a dog treat, like a, a sno- like a snossage. <laughs> like when like when a dog gets excited to see you, but like one of those little dogs where you kind of feel gross about seeing it. At the same time, it seems determined to make you see it. It was like that, like a pink angry button. It's like waving around trying to give me orders, but I didn't know what I could touch without making something on him hurt. But he was determined to make this thing happen and I was determined to make this thing happen because I was going to get this virginity over with and he was cute and you know non-threatening and he's just trying to jam this thing and I'm lying on the floor of his parents office on this kind of itchy afghan and I'm thinking man I feel like I'm playing operation but I'm the board (laughs) anyway it didn't happen and to this day I don't know if I just found a guy who wasn't done growing his stuff yet or if he had some kind of issue with his parts I really don't have any dick experience with someone younger than 15 and I'm not going to find that stuff out through Google because I'm terrified of my search history being used against me in a court of law someday. I mean, unrelated to the kid dicks, but that shit's not going to help. So there were a couple of near dick experiences after that, but I'll just skip to this part. I, I went to a party not long after that. One of those parties where I've told at least six lies to my parents to be there, and the mom who's watching over the party is in the corner doing cocaine with some teen boys, and her daughter's in the bedroom having sex with her boyfriend. Believe me, this is not the kind of party I would normally go to. I'd never seen cocaine before, and I even averted my eyes when I realized what it was and what was happening, because this is the kind of party that's on a very special episode of something, and so I'm terrified the cops are going to bust in any moment somehow with my disappointed mom and dad, because that's how it happens on those very special episodes. And I didn't want to have seen anything incriminating. In fact, when Kay's parents found out that she was at this party, they made her come home immediately. In order to keep me from getting busted, we had to part ways. I stayed at a party filled with strangers while my lifeline went home to begin a lengthy punishment. I didn't drink or do drugs or even smoke cigarettes, so I'm at this party sitting on a couch watching Mothra versus Godzilla because I have no way home. And there's a guy sitting on the couch next to me. He's pretty nice. A punk, oh man, <laughs> punk in a worn out t-shirt for a band I don't know. He's got a bleached mohawk and oily skin, skinny pants, combat boots. He made sure I always had a soda. He told me he thought my blue eyes were pretty and he loved my pale white skin. I decided I was going to have sex with him. I wasn't going to do drugs or get wasted and there was an 85% chance I was going to be grounded in the morning for being there. So I figured I will make out with this nice boy until he transforms me into a woman. So we started kissing only after everybody had disappeared or gone to sleep, although there might have been some people sleeping in the room. I don't know. It was the, at the style at the time. I remember finding it odd that he didn't want to take off his combat boots, even though we were sharing a sleeping bag. I mean, he was about to be on top of me. I wasn't sure I wanted combat boots all up in that situation. 
but he was adamant. <laughs> he said they were too much of a pain in the <laughs> too much of a pain in the ass to take off. And I figured maybe he was nervous about foot odor. So we went back to complimenting my eyes, the color of my skin, my blonde hair. You're perfect, he said. We're kissing, we're hugging, it's kind of sweet, and I literally have no idea where I am. And I start thinking about how exciting it was that I'm making such a grown-up decision. It made me feel so womanly. I was just going to have sex with this mohawk stranger in boots, and I wanted to know just how amazing this moment was, how very French film we were. So I got really close to his ear, and I said, I can't believe I'm doing this with you. I mean, here we are, here you are, about to take my virginity. You will be my first time. He stopped, rolled over onto his back, and with a very long sigh said, Good night. <laughs> we got a ride home the next morning from the girl hosting the party, and after she dropped him off at his house, she turned to me and she asked, Did you two do it last night? No, I said, I guess he's just too much of a gentleman. Maybe he wanted to wait until the time was right, maybe more special. Because uh, you know he's a skinhead, right? Oh, his combat boots had white laces, and he was really into my skin, specifically the color of it. And I shuddered with the realization that I'd almost lost my virginity to a white power supremacist. <laughs> my year of dicks was starting to piss me off. <laughs> so the skinhead was a sign that I needed to step back and reassess. That's a sentence I can't believe I wrote about my past. So I went legit. I got a boyfriend, a boyfriend my mother absolutely hated, like deep passion hated. She hated him for nothing other than the way he looked, which made me love him so much more. Is there anything that can fuel teenage love more than a mother's disdain? I think not. <laughs> anyway, I knew there was a possibility that we might eventually have sex together because we've been totally dating for at least three weeks. So one day I'm sitting in the garage with my mother Going through boxes, getting ready for a garage sale When I thought about how I was getting older And we were going to run out of these moments These mother-daughter moments where we could really talk She could give advice And I could listen And we would just totally, totally get each other So I say, hey mom How old were you when you lost your virginity? And she looks at me She looks me right in the eyes and she says You shut up You shut the fuck up right now. And she left the room for about five minutes. When she returned, she was awkwardly composed and she announced, your father would like to speak to you in the living room. In the living room, my father's sitting on his recliner with a tumbler of old granddad in hand. He's smoking a cigarette and looking a little pale. <laughs> passed away a number of years ago. I feel like you should all know that now as a disclaimer. Run if you need, if you feel the need to run, I understand. So I take a seat on my skateboard on the floor in the middle of the room, and this is where one of the most traumatic experiences of my entire life begins. Come on in. I'll, I, I'll sort of wait a second. Just watch my purse. All right. <laughs> you wanted to see me? Your mother tells me you're thinking about having sex. No, Dad, I was just trying to have a... He, my dad does this hand gesture, which means all of what he's about to say is way more important than anything I was about to. Okay, regardless. Let's just say you were thinking about having sex. Right, but Dad, I'm not. We'll, we'll say you are. Why? Why do we have to do that? Pamela, what makes you think that you're ready to have sex? Uh... Well, I guess I mean, because it would be that I'm in love and ready to move the relationship to the next level. Okay, what makes you think you'd like sex? 
Well, um, lots of people have sex and they seem to like it on TV. I mean, I haven't seen anybody having sex. It's not like people invite me to watch. <laughs> so this information is all, you know, from books and movies and not like porn. I don't watch porn other than like soft stuff like Cinemax. Have you read Endless Love? <laughs> oh my gosh, you guys. Pamela, let me ask you a question. This is so weird to be yelling at you guys. You guys. Have you ever experienced an orgasm? <laughs> this is so weird to do loudly. Okay, so if you've never been directly asked by a parent if you've had an orgasm, I'm going to tell you what it's like. Oh, holy shit. Oh, this is, this is a memorable evening, Litfest. So your brain starts making a lot of loud sounds to try to drown out what's happening while your body triggers a reflex somewhere right around your stomach, like a diaphragm thing where you're only able to make sounds like, no, 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 which is, I guess what I was saying when dad waved his hand again. So you're saying you've never masturbated or anything? No, 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 Dad, no. Why, why is this happening to me? I mean, what kind of bonding moment is he looking for here? <laughs> yeah, Dad, I've masturbated. Love it. It's great. Oh, good, I know. Do you use your hand? Or I mean, mostly I like shower massages, too. That's always good. Yeah, we have a great one in the master bath if you want to try it. Thanks, Dad. You're welcome, Pam. Oh, you know what? I almost fucked a skinhead the other night. It happens to the best of us, kid. Anyway... <laughs> So Detective Dad has concluded that I have no concept of what sex will feel like due to my lack of my orgasm or touching myself skills. Do you know how I lost my virginity? So now I'm having the talk I thought I was going to have with my mom, but I'm having it with my dad instead. Maybe I could work with this. There's something here that could still be healthy, right? Graphic, definitely, and maybe a bit uncomfortable, but how progressive. A father and daughter having the big chats kind of sweet when you think about it. My buddies took me to a prostitute and told me I couldn't leave until I had sex with her. Yeah, or not, or not. It could be one of the top ten worst days of my life. I don't even remember her name. She had a lot of back acne and really dark nipples that I didn't find attractive. You had a teacher once who looked a lot like her. I think her name was Karen, the hooker, not your teacher. Ma'am, let me tell you something. Women don't actually like having sex. This is all true, you guys. (laughs) Thus, you can tell. Uh... What the woman likes is the foreplay before the sex, touching, teasing, rubbing on nipples, clitoral stimulation, very sensual, deliberate moves designed for her pleasure. So she likes the hugging and cuddling afterward in the glow following sex, but the, the, the penetration that I just need you to know he did that, the penetration of sex on a woman is just, it's, it's quite painful. It's very aggressive and it can be shocking and invasive and then sometimes there's chafing and tearing and then lots of blood, especially when your vagina is so young and inexperienced like yours. I really have to get through all that all at once. So if you're wondering what I'm doing when he's saying all this, mostly I'm just trying to stare at the other side of the world. And there's this screaming in my head that's going, why is this happening to me? Let me tell you something, Pam. The male penis doesn't actually know the difference, really, between a vagina, a hand with a little Vaseline in it, or a rubber doll. And I, I, look, I have a lot of regrets about that day, but one of them has to be that right then I didn't ask Dad about the cocktail wiener dick because he was clearly in the mood to tell me some things. (laughs) And other than you fine people, I've never talked about it before and it haunts me more than Dad's hooker story. So here's Dad's telling me that men could just fuck any old thing, like literally an empty toilet paper roll or a hollowed out watermelon or like a fresh pan of Jiffy Pop. I don't know. He's going on about how that's so very different from the complicated machinery inside a woman. And then dad shifts his chair, leans forward. Dad's getting real, y'all. And he puts his elbows on his knees and he lifts his hand in this gesture I wish I could forget. And he says, now your mother, 
gets wet easily. I know he said things after that, but I don't remember them. I was very far away thinking about how I'd made some poor choices that led to this moment, and I just wanted to know if there was any way to just think yourself to death. Or if you could just make your brain, make your heart just stop right there on your skateboard in the living room as your father lights another cigarette and keeps on telling you about how your mother doesn't really like sex. And you have this weird moment where you wonder if your dad also has the unfinished growing dick. And is that why your mom's so sexually unsatisfied? And maybe that's why she overreacted when you accidentally broke that vase in the kitchen because she's not getting fucked. But now you know so much about your parents that emancipation seems like the only way to get through the rest of your life. And why is this happening to me? So I think that you and that boy should just have oral sex for a while. Just try that out. If you feel you need more after, say, a month, come back and talk to me, and we'll see if you're ready to move on. Dad's just my sex pharmacist now, you guys, giving me a prescription. My spiritual guide on the way to vaginal penetration. And I like how he's suggesting everything to keep the dick away from my god hole. Oh, so you guys like oral? You think you'd be okay with anal? Here's a pamphlet and some lube. Could be a little rough at the beginning. Give it a couple of weeks. Let me know how it goes. We'll see where you take it from there. Dad ends this speech with a pleased, good talk. I found a way to stumble down the hall, passing my mom without making any eye contact. And then I locked myself in my bedroom, and I didn't come out until I was a freshman in college. The good news is that my dad's sex talk officially ended my year of dicks because, I mean, fuck it. It's just not worth it. I was fine with being a virgin forever. I didn't want to know any more about Coke bottle dicks or mini dicks or my dad's dick. I was done. I went back to saving myself for true love, which meant I was destined to encounter a whole lot of dick moves. Thank you. Now that was a good talk, wasn't it? Yes, thank you so much. I think, if I'm not mistaken, Sunday is Father's Day? Yes, 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 thank you very much. Um, All of these wonderful writers have books for sale in the back of the tent, and you're stuck here because it's raining, so go buy some books. Let's give them another round of applause. Wonderful reading. Thank you so much. Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.